Welcome back to Single Minded, where we are flipping the script on being single. I am your host, Hannah First. And I'm your mum, Linda. And co-host. And co-host. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. Now, Hannah, you have been on your first overnight hike in 17 years. You had all the I equipment have. on your back, frightening. How was it? <laughs> it was the best weekend I've had since I was in Thailand. <laughs> What was the name of the place? It was Wilson's Prom. It's really hard to describe how amazing it was on audio. So you can go and check it out on my Instagram stories. I've done a highlight called Hiking. It's the only hike on there. My friend Catherine organised for four girls who, like, we only knew Catherine. So Catherine and three of her friends who didn't know each other. But we all wanted to go hiking. And she kind of created this little hiking group. The reason I think it came about was Catherine sent me a screenshot from Hinge. She saw this guy on Hinge and his bio said, a shower thought I had recently. How packed the trails would be if everyone on here who says they enjoy hiking actually (laughs) went hiking? (laughs) Do lots of people say that? Yeah, I think people just put it in. But I say it, but I, I love hiking. I just don't do it. A I lot. just get stuck in everyday life of dinners and catching up for a walk around the tan. Like I never actually venture out and go hiking. Anyway, Catherine and I started talking about it and next thing we were organizing, there's a lot of organization that has to go into the first one. And you shopped for that amazing mattress. <laughs> Yes. And I slept in a tent. It was two nights. We walked Mm. over 40 kilometers in three days. We had to cook all our own food. We had to sterilize water that looked like piss. It was like yellow piss colored water. Someone said, well, you're a bit glass half empty. Like, why don't you pretend it looks like white wine? So like I wanted to give a bit of an update on the talent that was on the hike. Mm. I was actually really hoping to meet some cute guys. But when you're walking back from the drop toilet, you haven't showered in three days. You haven't changed <laughs> you're your not clothes much in good three for days. Anything, you just are you? wiped your vagina and your bum with femme fresh wipes. Oh. And you just change your panty liner for the day. (laughs) And then you walk past a cute guy. (laughs) No. And you make splits. (laughs) You make split second eye contact. It's just not the sexiest place to meet someone new. It's impossible. You couldn't do anything in the bush. My white shirt looked like it was stained with fake tan, even though I didn't have any (laughs) fake tan on. I wanted to ask you where that beach was the pictures what was that called again the first campsite was little water little waterloo bay and the second one was refuge cove and so the campsites you know walking two seconds from the beach so when you showed me refuge cove that's my kind of yes. beach i actually googled hotels no. but nothing came up <laughs> yes linda you have to walk and you have to camp i do want to say that i have done plenty of hikes with your father, where I put my stuff on my back, but we stay in hotels. We don't camp. No, because I technically have done that plenty of times. It's a right. completely so different experience having to carry food and you know, your sleeping bag, your food, everything. You can't, mm. there's no pharmacies, there's no Wi Fi. Mm. You get into bed at night and you've got no, nothing. I don't know whose daughter you are, no, no. but not mine. It was 
Amazing. I actually was thinking, could I convince you to do a hike for the content? Absolutely not. Sorry. You wouldn't? It's not even possible. No. And the amount of times. One night? No. I'm not sleeping. What if I carried the tent? (laughs) No. Oh, and sleep with you in a tent, never. And also I've tried that bed of yours and I roll over a lot and that can barely. It's not a bed, it's a a sleeping mat. A mattress. I barely fit on it. Sorry, that's not happening. (laughs) Not only that, you know, there's no toilet. I have to go to the toilet about at least three times in the night and that's just awful. Yeah, but I had to get up and I had to go into the bush and piss, Mm. you know, squat down and pee. Mm. I'm the same as you. We sleep the same. I had to get up four times in the night and I woke the whole campsite up every time I zipped myself out and peed. Anyway, I have wanted to do this for years and years and the reason I've been putting it off was because I thought – oh, I would only want to do it with a guy, like I wouldn't want to go, you know, I don't know. I just had it in my head that I would do it when I met someone. Now you've got a girl gang. Well, what's really funny is so the other two girls that I met on the hike both had boyfriends, but, yeah, we all decided to do it as a girl group. And are you going to do it again? Yeah, we want to do Overland in October. I did the one in Tasmania. What's that called? Yeah, that's the Overland. Oh, so we did that many thousands of years ago. Must have left your kids at home. You were little and that had all manner of weather. We weren't very prepared. And I remember we carried everything. But in the end, after I think four days or five days, no shower, I burst into tears at the last last campsite and we had to really get out by then. Wait, I just you camped? Yes. No, you no, no, no. They in a tent? Once because they the, set it up for you. No, 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 Dad set it up. But the rest of the time there were ca- not cabins, but rooms with huts. Um, huts, huts with hard beds, and you just rolled out your mattress. Worst five days of my life. See, that sounds like heaven to me. That sounds like an amazing five days. All right. Well, today's episode is all about social anxiety and dating with social anxiety. So let's get into the interview and Linda will be back to give her thoughts. Dr. Ellen Hendrickson is a clinical psychologist who helps millions calm their anxiety and be their authentic selves. She serves on the faculty at Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders and is the author of How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be on. So I really just wanted to start right at the beginning and ask, what is social anxiety? Sure. No, that's a perfect place to start. And social anxiety is often thought of as like a fear of embarrassment or sometimes even like just a fear of people. And that doesn't really capture the essence of it. What it really is, is a idea that somehow there's something wrong with us. And it's this perception that we have something wrong with us. And that unless we work really hard to conceal that, to hide that, then we will be revealed and judged or rejected for whatever that perceived fatal flaw is. Mm -hmm. And whatever that perceived fatal flaw is can really vary from person to person. So it ends up making social anxiety this very like heterogeneous, very uh, diverse concept, Mm -hmm. which is why it's hard to nail down just one definition. Mm -hmm. And I would like to know, I guess, that 
because we talk about extroverts and shyness and introverts, sort of what's the difference between social anxiety, introversion, extroversion, and things like being shy? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. So two of those terms, so social anxiety and shyness go together. And shyness is really just a colloquial way of saying socially anxious, like kind of what I call lowercase s socially anxious. However, introversion and social anxiety are really different. And one of my you know, favorite taglines is that we, we often think of them as like tomato, tomato, but they're really more like apples and oranges. They're really different. And they are different because I like to say that introversion is born. Like it's a, it's a built in personality characteristic that comes just, you know, baked in out of the oven. Whereas social anxiety is made. And yes, there's a genetic component. And if we're related to somebody, if we have a first degree relative who has social anxiety, then we're six to eight times as likely to also have social anxiety. So it's definitely a genetic component, definitely runs in families. But we seem to be born with like this clay of anxiety and then our experiences mold that into a particular fear. So that could end up being, you know, OCD or social anxiety or whatever it is we're lucky enough to, to be, to be dealt. So that's one difference. Introversion is born. Social anxiety is made. And then introversion, there's no uh, fear component to introversion. Mm. In introversion, we may have a lower tolerance for stimulation or for social stimulation. We may, you know, need kind of more time to recharge or be by ourselves or be more most comfortable with the people closest to us. Whereas in social anxiety, fear is really what underpins that. So it's absolutely possible, for example, to be a socially anxious extrovert. Mm. And so we, you know, we may feel pulled to the stage, but afraid that, you know, everyone's going to throw tomatoes at us, or we may feel, we may love parties, but like worry that no one wants us there, or we may want to go out to the bar with our coworkers, but, you know, worry that they just invited us out of pity rather than out of rather like actually wanting to be with us. Mm. So it's totally possible to be a socially anxious extrovert. And that really puts us between a rock and a hard place. When a person with social anxiety goes into social situations, is there any like physical reactions or anything that kind of happens to them in those situations? And is it all social situations or is it with people that they don't know as well? Sure. Yeah, it all depends. So the the most common like thread in terms of physical reactions is just like an urge to hide. <laughs> it's like this this urge to to cover, you know, somehow. And so however that manifests for people, I guess that's not really one physical reaction, but then, you know, also all the usual package deal of anxiety can kick in. There's that shot of adrenaline, mm. sometimes people's handshakes or they might blush. So yeah, there's, there's all the typical anxiety reactions, but it, you know, it depends from person to person. And then you asked about, you know, is this all social situations? It really depends on the person's perceived reveal. So for example, if somebody is worried that they're going to be revealed as incompetent, they will probably get really anxious before a meeting with their boss mm -hmm. or a presentation at work. Whereas if somebody is worried that they'll be revealed as boring, then they'll be less likely to go to a party or some, somewhere else where that perceived reveal is salient. Mm. 
So in terms of the book that you wrote, which is How to Be Yourself, what are some of the themes that you explored in this book? Oh my gosh, so many things. Here, I'll, I'll try to pick some greatest hits. So I guess the, the most important thing I want to say about like capital S social anxiety and also like, you know, diagnosable social anxiety, but also, you know, more lowercase everyday social anxiety is that the idea that something is wrong with you, this perception that something is wrong with us is a distortion. <laughs> And that's, you know, that's what makes this a disorder. There are four buckets that our social anxiety reveals, like these distortions fall into. The first is our appearance. And that is something along the lines of being afraid that we're going to be judged or revealed as like fat or ugly or that our hair is weird or our skin is blemished, something like that. The second bucket is the signs of anxiety themselves. So there it's that we might blush and people will judge us as like, oh, well, something must be wrong with her or like, oh, or like if we sweat through our shirt, oh, like she must be an anxious freak. The third bucket is our social skills. We might worry that we come across as boring or awkward or we go blank or we don't have anything to say. And the fourth bucket is our entire character, like we are stupid or we're incompetent or we're a loser or something like that. So within these four buckets, all of these ideas that something is wrong with us are, are distortions. And now they might have a tiny grain of truth. Like maybe we do blush or, you know, maybe we do lose our train of thought in conversation, but the reaction that we're expecting or the judgment or rejection that we're expecting is disproportionate to what likely will actually happen. Mm. Our anxiety is disproportionate to the, the consequences. Mm -hmm. So that is one theme that this idea that something wrong is wrong with you is a distortion. Another huge theme is that the thing that maintains really all anxiety, particularly social anxiety, is avoidance, which is exactly what it sounds like. And that is steering clear of the things that make us anxious. And that avoidance can take two forms. So there could be overt avoidance. We might simply not show up. We might cancel on our friends. We might decide not to go to the party at the last minute or not pick up our phone when it rings. Or we could do what's called covert avoidance. And that is when we do show up, but we kind of stay inside our head or we do other little things that we think are gonna protect us. Like we might go hide in the bathroom or we might at a party, you know, stay in the corner and just kind of scroll through our Twitter feed or, or mm -hmm. you know, pet our friend's cat or just stick really, really closely to whoever we came with and not talk to anyone else. Mm -hmm. So that's covert avoidance. But all that avoidance feeds the two lies of social anxiety. And those two lies are one, the worst case scenario is bound to happen. Like the worst thing my anxiety can think of is a foregone conclusion. And the second lie is I can't handle this. Like I can't handle the blips and bloops and awkwardness that life throws at me. And so when we avoid things, we build them up as you know big and scary in our mind. And then it becomes harder to, to face those fears because we never get a chance to refute those two lies that a, you know, the worst case scenario might happen, but it's not likely. It's not a mm -hmm. foregone conclusion. And that actually 
we can cope pretty well, or we can we can handle these things. Like nobody ever died of anxiety, nobody ever died of embarrassment, and that we can make this work. Mm. And you mentioned before about about that there's nothing wrong with you, and that it's about being yourself. So, what do you mean by how to be yourself in relation to having social anxiety? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, like we've all been in a position where we're about to go on a first date, or about to started a new school or we're about to start a new job and we're nervous and inevitably someone will say to us, just be yourself. Mm-hmm. And on the one <laughs> hand, that advice is super annoying <laughs> as if you know, like, oh, is that all I have to do? Well, okay. If it were that easy, if we could flip a switch and, and do that, then we would have done that already. And at the same time, it is fantastic advice because Like I said, these perceptions that things are wrong with us are distortions. But so often we have, especially folks with social anxiety, have an urge to kind of delay or otherwise wait to be less anxious before we live our life. Mm. There's there's this wish to like often like kind of retreat from the world and like work on ourselves and then like emerge, you know, like fully formed into the world like a butterfly and <laughs> and then do the things we want to to do. And instead, we actually become less anxious by living our life. And so if we can go into the world, which again, I know is easier said than done with social anxiety, but, and just, you know, it be ourselves, we will get feedback that, that we are sufficient. So let's, let's link this to like mood and action. We often think we have to feel like doing something before we do it. We think we have to feel like going to the gym before we go like lace up our shoes. And so true. Right. Or we think we have to feel like sitting down to work on our novel or whatever Mm -hmm. we're, you know, whatever creative project we're doing. But really, that's backwards as well. And so if we lace up our shoes and head to the gym, often our mood catches up and we're glad we went or we, we get into the workout, you know, 10 minutes in. If we, you know, sit down at our desk and open our laptop and start pounding away at the keys, like inspiration finds us working, as they say. And so the same thing happens with confidence, that it's not fair and it's not cool that we have to do the things the first time when we're not confident. So I acknowledge that those first steps are really hard. But as we kind of iteratively do the things that we're scared of, as we iteratively do the things that we want to do and live our life with anxiety rather than waiting to get over that anxiety, then our confidence will catch up. And so by be yourself, I mean, rather than waiting to be less anxious and then living your life, Mm. become less anxious by living your life. Mm, I love that. Yeah. That's good advice. I think that's just That's not just people with social anxiety because I do that as well, particularly around dating. I'm like, no, I'll start dating when, because I get, I get really anxious dating. I'll start dating when all these stars align. Yes. When the stars are aligned, then I'll go and do the thing, but just got to do the thing to make the thing less scary. Exactly. Exactly. You know, again, easier said than done, Yeah, but, but it is a good thing to keep yeah in the back of your mind. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. What are some of the myths about social anxiety? Yeah. So I think there are a lot, but I will give uh, kind of the top three as, as I see it. 
So one is that we have to keep an eye on ourselves, that we have to keep an eye like on how we're doing or on our performance or like, how am I coming across or am I being boring? And when we turn our attention inward to ourselves in a socially anxious moment, we are essentially asking our inner critic, how am I doing? And of course your inner critic is gonna say, you suck, you're doing it all wrong. So when we're anxious and we, and we turn our attention inward and start to monitor ourselves, it eats up all our bandwidth and leaves very little for paying attention to what is actually happening in the moment, which might actually refute what our inner critic is saying. Like maybe things are going quite well, but because we're, you know, our attention spotlight is pointed inward at our critic, you know, we feel like things are going terribly. Whereas if we can turn our attention outward to the person we're with, to the environment around us, to what our conversation partner is saying, basically pay attention to anything except ourselves, our anxiety will go down. So that's one myth. You don't have to monitor yourself. Instead, you know, turn that attention spotlight inside out. So that's, that's one. Two, I think a huge myth is I have to be impressive or, you know, fill in the blank here. <laughs> I have to be funny. I have to sound smart. I have to be confident. Mm. And so that, it turns any social situation where we put such pressure on ourselves into a performance. And also it really taps into perfectionism and perfectionism drives social anxiety in particular. We think that if we haven't knocked it out of the park that we're a big loser, or if we haven't come across as fantastically confident and cool and funny that no one will wanna talk to us. So rather than trying to perform and to you know, be impressive or confident or you, know, you name it, to simply try to, to focus on like the content or the connection, the, the connection between you and whoever you're with is where you wanna put your energy as opposed to how am I coming across? I have to be impressive. Etc. So focus on connection, not performance. And then a third myth that I'll give you is how you feel equals how you look. That you know you worry your anxiety on your sleeve. Mm. So that's that's a myth. How you feel is not how you look. And when I do therapy with clients who come in with you know capital S social anxiety, one of the most useful tools is what's called video feedback. Because folks with social anxiety will often play like kind of a movie in their mind. It's called the observer perspective. Mm. And they'll see themselves as if from an observer perspective, like, you know, screwing up or being rejected or acting dumb or being awkward. Whereas that is a scene that they've never actually seen before. And so a great way to replace a movie in your mind is with an actual movie. And so I'll work with people and we'll record them having a nice to meet you conversation. Um, I'm working with a med student and we recorded her Zoom call in presenting to a fake attending. And when we play these videos back, we'll ask, you know, what do you expect to see? And you know, folks will say things like, oh, I expect to look like a babbling idiot or like, oh, my, my, I hate my voice. My voice gets super high. Or I expect like that I'll jump from topic to topic. I'll have no idea, I'll have no idea what I'm talking about. And then inevitably, when we play back the actual movie, 
almost none of those things come true, that, that the movie in their mind, how they think they're coming across, doesn't match at all how the world actually sees them. They're really interpreting that felt sense of anxiety, that sense that they're being revealed or they're you know, doing terribly or they're being awkward or you know, what have you. That felt sense gets interpreted as truth. So how you feel mm. isn't how you look. You have also written about the upsides of social anxiety. Can you take me through a couple of those? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm delighted you asked that question <laughs> as well, because there are upsides of social anxiety. There are superpowers to social anxiety. Social anxiety is a package deal. So yes, the anxiety feels lousy, but it comes packaged with a lot of strengths that help us, particularly in the, in the 21st century. So folks with social anxiety are often good listeners. They're often quite empathetic. They're the, so the technical term is pro-social, which basically just means like helpful and kind. They're better at remembering faces, which is interesting. Mm. I'm not mm. sure why that is, but you know that has been shown. And most importantly, folks with social anxiety are conscientious, which basically just means like responsible and you know thorough. You know the exact kind of person you would want as a reliable, stick by you friend. And conscientiousness has been shown to be the, the number one trait for both subjective and objective success in life. So the fact that that comes packaged with social anxiety is, is really quite a blessing. So lots, lots of upsides, lots of superpowers in social anxiety. And um, now on to dating and just socializing in general, I guess, with social anxiety, what's it kind of like for someone? And I know it's probably like this is a bit of a generalization, but what's it like dating with social anxiety? Yeah, no, I want to validate, validate, validate that like dating is super hard with mm. social anxiety because there's a grain of truth to it. Like if the if the fear is that we're being evaluated, yes, we are being evaluated. <laughs> we're going on dates to see if we like our date, but also, you know, to see if they like us. It is a little bit of a performance. It is a little bit of evaluation. So I do want to validate, like, that's not a distortion. But again, that anxiety is disproportionate. That fear that will be revealed and like harshly judged or rejected. Yes, you know, we live in a world where not everybody is nice. And like it can happen, but it again, that fear is generally disproportionate. So yeah, I just want to validate that it it is hard. But for folks who are waiting to feel better before they start dating, I'll go back to the live your life to feel less anxious truism. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one thing. Another thing we talked about to not make it up such a performance to if we put so much pressure on ourselves to be impressive or confident or i have to be you know xyz that is going to make us kind of freeze up or or clam up and make us more anxious so taking the pressure off and again focusing on that connection rather than a performance again turning our attention inside out paying attention to our date looking at them, listening to them is going to get us way farther than focusing inward and trying to perform. Mm. And then something that I would also mention is to underscore that is to turn the tables. Like what attracts you to other people? It's probably not how well they, you know, quote unquote, perform like, okay, does this person seem confident? Does mm. this person seem, you know, impressive? Probably we are most attracted to or most connected to people who are kind and who listen to us and who seem genuinely interested. 
And so there, focus on those things, because probably what you're looking for in a partner or in a good date is likely what, what they're looking for as well. Once again, rather than a performance, focus on that connection. That's um, all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining me. That was great. Good to learn more about social anxiety. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was an honor. Thank you. So, Linda, we're back. Social anxiety. What were your thoughts? <laughs> well, it's funny because I don't have anxiety going into social situations because... I would beg to differ, but anyway. No, 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 no. <laughs> Generally, you're mixing with old friends and you're pretty comfortable. I might get stressed getting ready, but that's not about social anxiety. Yes, but I've always true. had bad anxiety at work with presenting anything or even having to introduce myself at a table of people I don't know. <laughs> I literally hate saying, hi, my name is Linda, blah, blah, blah. And then I start sweating and my mouth goes dry. And you know, I've never given a speech in my life. But I don't have trouble with this podcast, no problem with being mm. filmed and speaking into the camera, and I think that's because there's actually no people there. So it might be different if you wanted to do a single-minded event. I doubt I'd be able to do that. And <laughs> oh, well, sorry to break it to you, but one day. <laughs> no. One and day, if, I don't yes. think I could. And if anyone said, <laughs> could you do a speech, um, i just decline. So even though Ellen recommended facing your fears, for me, I've got through mm. without doing that and I'm not going to start now. And speaking of mm -hmm. 60th speeches, my birthday dinner is Saturday night, just the fam bam. Should I prepare yes. something to say? Yes, 100% because you are the least <laughs> sentimental person I know. I'm the opposite of sentimental mushiness. So Get out I of your comfort zone. I don't think so, but you guys know I love you, right? Yes, but you just don't say it very often. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll try to write a glowing report card on each of you. And what you all mean to me. She does do a good card. The speech is really similar. Just write it down and then you have to say it out loud. I'll give it a go. I, I didn't even know you had problems with, like, I didn't even know you didn't like introducing yourself to people that you didn't know. You seem fine. No, we went to St. John's Ambulance for that course and Dad and I were sitting in a big circle and you had to introduce yourself, say where oh. you worked and what, and I just went, I just froze and I said, Rob, you'll have to introduce both of us and I didn't say a word. <laughs> it's just, I, don't, I can't. So on my bucket list is to, I've always had on my bucket list to do like an open mic night. Oh my um, and goodness. to write some like jokes and and to do that and then I caught up with Bianca Ismailovsky and she does you know two podcasts and she's at the comedy festival this mm. year and she said well you don't need to do an open mic night like you could just do like a live podcast show to start with and see how that goes well based on this conversation Linda you'll never be doing a live podcast show am I I don't I think I could <laughs> so, I really don't if I can't say hello my name is Linda yes <laughs> I think I must be a little bit different to you. I definitely get anxiety like dating. But what was really interesting was a girl sent me a message on Instagram and it said, Hannah, I'm going on a date and I'm feeling so nervous. Do you have any tips? And so I actually put it on my Instagram and I said, like, 
uh, on the close friends, which is the bachelorette thing. And I said, you know, does any of the single-minded community have tips on anxiety? And I said, my tip was that when I go on dates now, I just say, oh, I'll never see him again. And then you just put no pressure on it. So I don't get as, I don't get as nervous. But I was really surprised that the most common response back was like drink, like tequila shot, um, pre-drinks. And I was so surprised that alcohol was the most common response to dealing with the anxiety of going on dates. Mm. So you've been doing walking dates and coffee dates. So do you get nervous before that knowing that you're not going out for a drink? I did. It's like the fear that she spoke about. It's Mm. really about facing the fear of turning up as yourself and I prefer it. I think it's a lot easier. So just keep practicing. You've got to practice going on those kinds of dates. Mm. Now, lastly, Linda, you had a little update on the episode that we did with BB about not having children because this has sparked a bit of conversation within your friendship group. It has, and it's continued to play on my mind because I'd never discussed with any friends who are childless through no choice of their own, how they feel about it now in their 50s and 60s. So I've just been away with a group of friends on the weekend, one of whom is a very old school friend who is a lesbian. So I asked her how she felt about being 60 and not having children. So she told me that when she was in her late 30s and a single at that time, she decided she'd try and have a child and she wanted her closest gay male friend to donate the sperm. So the method, which I'd never heard of, this involved injecting his semen into her vagina using a needleless syringe, uh, or as she called Mm -hmm. it, the turkey-baster method. turkey-basting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I've heard of it. (laughs) But it wasn't successful. And then he went overseas for quite a few years. And when he came back to Australia, she was by then in her 40s, and he offered to try again. But she just thought she'd was too old. And I asked her why she hadn't used donor sperm and kept trying. And she said, because her father died when she was two, she didn't want to raise her child without a father. So she wanted someone who would be involved with the child. And so the only option for her anyway, was her close friend. But now Mm -hmm. she has a partner who's got three adult children. And um, she said she's got no regrets and doesn't dwell on it. So there's another viewpoint. I've known her since primary school. And you never, never knew asked. this. Never asked. Oh, I do I do like that everyone's talking about it. What was the reason for not ever asking? Is it just too uncomfortable? It's an uncomfortable topic maybe and you think you don't want to upset people but actually they're more than happy to discuss and it's probably good to get it out in the open. And I didn't know this story about her at all. I'd, I'd, I'd never mm. checked. Mm. Well... I know you're turning 60, so it is possible to change and evolve even as you get older, isn't it? Well, it's this it's this podcast listening to all these great guests Aww. opening my mind to all <laughs> kinds of things. I am learning and growing. <laughs> so today, instead of a dating story, we actually have a dating tip from a listener. And as soon as I heard this dating tip, I was like, that is genius. Hope you enjoy. And don't forget that if you have any dating stories, any dating tips, please send me a DM at Hannah first, or you can email your voice memo to singlemindedpod at gmail.com. See you next week. So what I do now, because you're now the people's bachelorette round two, which I love, 
is I I voice note everyone on Bumble. So I swipe on Bumble and then as an opener, I voice note them and I have like three standard voice notes that I do. Uh, like three different aspects that I take for each whatever routes that I go down. And then I get their voice back and I like cull them from their voice. And it's really good. If I've had much more success that way, you should try it. Tell me what you think. If you made it this far, I'm hoping that you enjoyed the podcast. If you could subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review, that would be much appreciated. It really helps other people find the podcast. Not that I'm desperate or anything. See you next week.